Well, this morning we are looking at Titus 2. Again, continue to look at the amazing work of the grace of God in our lives. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verse 12. The grace of God, how the grace of God instructs us. Not only does it save us, but the grace of God instructs us. After explaining the gospel and, and God's call to be uh, an apostle, the Apostle Paul declares the success of the work of God, of God's grace in him. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, we read this. Paul writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul hence identifies how it was that he was saved and, and called and, and, and sanctified to preach and to live out the gospel. It is by God's grace, God's grace working in him. Now, the saints throughout the ages, if they have thought about it at all, if they thought about the grace of God at all, realize that they were saved and being sanctified by the grace of God. And, and they have reflected on how, how God's grace works in their life to transform them, making them more like their Savior. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was such a man. It is noted uh, by one historian that two or three years before John Newton's death, his sight had become so dim that he was no longer able to read. At breakfast, the portion of Scripture for the day was read to him, and it was 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It was Newton's custom on these occasions to make a short familiar exposition on the passage read. After the reading of this text, he paused for some moments and then exclaimed, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God I am what I am. And any true believer in Christ can say the same thing. Our study of Titus brings us to verse 12 this morning, where we'll see that, that God works in our lives to teach us and instruct us. Now, let's read Titus 2, and again, we'll read verses uh, 1 through, the, through the, the end of the chapter. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, 
sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adore the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 shows us the the works, the stupendous works of the grace of God uh, in our lives. Not only saving us from our sins that we looked at last week, but but today we'll see that the grace of God teaches us. And later next week, we'll look how the grace of God uh, helps us uh, to look to the future, to motivate us to practical holiness and practical uh, righteousness. So let's dig in to see the, how the grace of God instructs us. Right? The second powerful and amazing work of the grace of God in the, in the life of a believer. Once the grace of God saves us, the grace of God begins teaching us. There's not some lag contrary to what some would say. There's no lag between when God saves us and when he begins teaching us. And it does go in that order. The Lord doesn't begin teaching someone until he begins until he has saved them. And it's interesting that God is a God of instruction. If you look at the false gods of the world, uh, you know, there, there are no such real gods, but there are, there, Paul says there are demons, and, and these demons are worshipped as if they're gods. But if you look at the other so-called gods of this world, they're just very demanding. They want this, they want that. And, and that's, all, that, that's all they're interested in is, is getting their adherents to do a certain thing. Well, certainly God wants us to do something. But it's, it's interesting that throughout the Old and New Testament, he's interested in educating you to help you to understand him and help you understand why it is that he wants you to live a certain way. It's not just do what I say without questions. It's he is leading us, he is teaching us, and he is instructing us. And, and it's found throughout Scripture. Listen to Moses explain the instructive purposes of God from Deuteronomy. I'm just going to read from Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, and, and there, this is the Moses instructing Israel. He says, All the commandments that I'm giving you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember... All the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, your foot, your, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your hearts that the Lord your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. 
Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. You see, when we when we are 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 born again by the Holy Spirit, we're brought into the family of God and God becomes our father. And he immediately begins instructing and disciplining us. And keep in mind, the Old Testament law was not given so that the Israelites could justify themselves. We're told in Galatians 3.24 that the law has become our tutor in order to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, going to the New Testament, we see uh, a passage, you know, well, in, in Romans 12, where Paul explains the instructive purposes of God. He says there, after giving us 11 chapters of kind of foundational theology, in verse 12, he pivots. And, and in verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the, the educational purpose of God is he wants to renew your mind. He's just not interested in, in making you conform in some kind of mindless uh, way. I mean, it, it would be possible if God wanted to do it when, when you are saved that you would instantly become uh, like a, a robot. Your programming would be totally rewritten and, and all of the viruses of sin would be removed from your life and you would just be programmed to do what he wants. Well, God, in God's providence, he's chosen not to do that. He's chosen to instruct you so that you would be transformed by, by your mind, by him instructing you through his word. So once a believer comes to a saving knowledge of God by faith alone in Christ alone, their faith never stays alone, but, but is manifested by the good works which believers are called to do as their minds are transformed by God's word so that they would understand how to live for the glory of God or better stated so that they would properly understand God and then properly understand to, uh, how they are to live for his glory. You see, knowing uh, that God is a God who instructs his people for the growth and transformation helps us see why Paul wrote what he did in these, these verses, in verses 11 to 14 of Titus 2. Right? Paul wants us to see that it is God's grace at work in our lives. And in, and in verse 12, really working to, to provide instruction in our lives. God's grace provides instruction. And as I mentioned, this verse ties back to, to verses uh, 1 to 10. So you have kind of some practical instructions on principles and characteristics that believers are called to live out, whether they're, these are specific to being men, a man or a woman or being young or old, these specific characteristics are given for a particular reason. Right? And that, that reason is in part because God is instructing us. He is instructing us on, on who he is and on how to live for his glory. Now, let's talk about, a little bit about God's work of instructing us. The in verb instructing here is, is interesting. Um, the, the, if you look at the dictionary definition, it can be translated as instructing or even as disciplining, which has caused some scholars to debate which is the proper meaning of that in Titus 2. Is, is God's grace teaching us? Is it, is it instructing us? Um, or is it disciplining us? And notice that 
you know, this is a legitimate de debate, and, and there is an alternate reading. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll see the, the disciplining is, a, is an alternate reading put in the margin of your Bible. Well, let's look at some examples of where this word is used with the sense of instructing us. For example, in Acts 7.22, um, tells us, Acts 7.22 tells us that Moses was instructed in, in the ways of Egyptian wisdom. I'll just read that to you. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. So that word educated is the same word that we're looking at here in, in Titus 2.12. that says God's instructing us. So he was educated. So definitely more on the side of, of instruction. Um, in Acts 22.3, we're told that Paul was instructed by Gamaliel in Paul's own confession. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia brought and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So again, it's translated there as educated. The same word that's used in Titus 2.11. And then listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So uh, in the end of verse uh, 16, there's that word training. So the same Greek word is translated to educate. It's, it's training. It's instruction in uh, Titus 2. And the, and the meaning of training is even brought out by some translations uh, in Titus uh, 2.12, like the English Standard Version and the HCSB. But there are also examples where this word is used with the sense of discipline. For example, in Luke 23.16, there Luke uses the word to describe the flogging Jesus faced. Truly an extreme form of discipline, but it was a form of discipline from, from the government's standpoint. It was unrighteous, it was unjust discipline, but, but discipline nonetheless from their standpoint. And Luke employs that term in his gospel. And I'll just read that to you. He says, Pilate Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man, referring to Jesus, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And that's, that's repeated again in verse 18. So the idea of, of scourging is there in, in Luke's gospel, he uses the same word to punish, right? that, and in, in the sense of like discipline. And then in a, a passage you, 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 I'm sure you have heard of us regarding the, the discipline of the Lord in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and I'm going to have you just turn there. Hebrews 12. So you kind of follow along. I'll read a, I'll read verses uh, three to eleven, and just just follow along with me, and and look for the word here. It's it's consistently translated. That same word is consistently translated as discipline, um, but but it uses what we call cognate. So in Titus, we're looking at a at a verb that the God in, God instruct the grace of God instructs us, but uh, and it's translated as He disciplines us in Hebrews. But there's what's called cognates, which are nouns um, referring to when discipline is used in a noun sense. So you'll see that as, as well here. Let's just read uh, Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 
being at verse 3. For consider, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I was confused of where I was at. My, my apologies. Verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness. So notice all the ways in which that that passage emphasizes how God disciplines us. Again, it's the same word that Titus uses that in Titus is translated instructs us. All right. So uh, listen, listen just um, to one commentator's highlights of of the meaning of this word, which can be translated instructing or disciplining. He says it can mean uh, to provide instruction for informed and responsible living to educate, to provide instruction for informed and responsible living to educate. But it also can mean to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices. And under that, uh, there's various meanings in order to correct or give guidance, to discipline, even with punishment. And it's used in scriptures mostly of divine discipline, but it speaks also of the discipline of human fathers, and even of Jesus of discipline in whipping or scourging. So what's the conclusion? If we go back to Titus 2, what's the conclusion? Is, is the grace of God disciplining us or is the grace of God instructing us? Well, I think the right answer in this context is yes. We need to see that the context favors the instructing work of God's grace. I think that's what's given to us in verses uh, 1 to 10. I mean, uh, Paul tells Titus to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is a teaching context. So the emphasis of the grace of God is instructing us transforming our minds but at the same time we need to see that that the disciplining work of god's grace is is not absent from this context i mean look at verse 15 where where paul tells titus these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority i mean some of those words he says speak that's more teaching exhort that's that's like get going with this that's an encouragement to do it and reprove that's correction that's that's discipline so the, the idea of discipline is not removed from this context. And D. Edmund Hebert uh, explains well what, what um, Paul means by using this verb here, because it's not the normal word for instruction or teaching. 
He says this, and I quote, the verb basically means to train a child, hence to instruct, train, educate. It comprehends the entire training process, teaching, encouragement, correction, discipline. So in other words, God is doing all of that. God is is doing as a, as a master craftsman, as a master teacher, he knows what we need, right? Once he saves us, he knows us, and he provides the instruction. He provides the encouragement. He provides the training. He provides even the discipline that we need uh, to learn his ways. So, and it's, and it's amazing here. You look at it. God's grace instructs who? Us. Right? This isn't done for all. This is done for the Lord's children, those who come to him by faith. And, and throughout these verses, it's interesting, the grace of God is personified to, as the one doing the primary action. Obviously, we understand that, that God is the ultimate teacher, the trainer, the tutor, the discipler, and the discipliner. It is he who instructs and trains and disciplines. And who does he train? but those who are truly his children, who are in Christ by faith, who are born again by faith, by the Spirit of God, through faith in the Son of God. I like how Charles Spurgeon explains this. He says, and I quote, The grace of God has come to be a schoolmaster to us, to teach us, to train us, to prepare us for a more developed state. Christ has manifested in his own person the wonderful grace of God that is to deal with us as sons and to educate us unto holiness, and so to the full possession of our heavenly heritage. We are the many sons who are to be brought to glory by the discipline of grace. Now God's work, God's grace instructs us in order to make us more like himself. And Spurgeon also calls attention to the fact that it's God's grace, in this context, God's grace is what's instructing us. Notice it's not God's law. Now, those, those shouldn't be pitted together. Those work together, as, as Paul explains in several passages. But in, in Titus, he's emphasizing the grace of God instructing us. And I, I just quote Spurgeon again here. He says, We generally think of law when we talk about schoolmasters and discipline. But grace itself has a discipline and a wonderful training power, too. The manifestation of grace is preparing us for the manifestation of glory. What the law could not do, grace is doing. The free favor of God instills new principles, suggests new thoughts, and by inspiring us with gratitude, creates in us love to God and hatred of that which is opposed to God. So the grace of God is teaching us to love what he loves and hate what he hates. So understand, how is it that the grace of God is instructing us? How is God's grace instructing us? And and by the way, he's instructing us in an ongoing fashion. That's the emphasis. It's just not a one-time lesson. Right? We all need multiple repeated lessons and even lessons to build on other lessons, much as we do with uh, our own schooling system. We don't throw calculus at third graders. Right? You build up to it by lessons. You have the lessons to do that. And in the same spiritual sense, God works in our lives. Uh, to help us understand the fundamentals before other things, understanding other things, and, and, and applying other things. So how is it that, the, that, that God's grace is teaching us? Well, Titus doesn't mention that primarily, but I want to draw it out just quickly. It's, it's through the Holy Spirit. So when you are born again, 
God's Holy Spirit comes to live within you. He becomes your resident counselor, your resident teacher. So it's through God's Holy Spirit, but it's also through God's Word. God's Word instructs us. God's Word instructs us when you read it, when you listen to a sermon. You're, you're being instructed through a pastor. So God's grace instructs us through His Spirit, through His Word, through pastors and teachers, and even through other believers. When you when you talk together before the service, after the service, or over a meal about what God is showing you, what, what you're learning. Um, and, you know, you, you help each other learn um, really uh, what the scriptures mean and how to, to apply it. So what is the lesson that Paul draws out that God is teaching us? What does he want to teach us? What does the grace of God want to teach us? Well, you'll see in Titus 2.12, there's a negative part and a positive part. So God's grace is instructing us not to think and to do sin, sinful things, but also on the positive side, to think and do godly things. So there's the put off and then there's the put on. And Paul deals with the negative first. And this follows the, the pattern of biblical repentance uh, that we see in Scripture where we're called to put off sinful, sinful, sinful behavior before we put on righteous behavior. For example, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 8, 8 to 10. So what, what is God, what is the grace of God instructing us to do? Well, the first kind of negative is the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness. The grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness. So I venture to say that ungodliness would probably be easier for you to identify in pictures or in video than it would be for you to, to maybe provide a, a dictionary definition of. Um, simply, you could say the word ungodly, um, would uh, simply mean to mean ungodlike. Um, and we're called to deny ungodliness. Now, what does it mean to deny? I mean, simple enough word. It, it basically means to say no to something. In this context, the word deny means to abrogate, to forsake, or renounce a thing, whether, whether good or whether evil. In this context, there's an evil connotation where it's a we are to uh, deny ungodliness. Now, the ancient church father, uh, Christosom, explains that denying implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion, unquote. So think about that. So God is calling us to have the greatest hatred and aversion to ungodliness. I also found uh, MacArthur's explanation of what it means to deny helpful. He said, to deny carries the idea of a conscious, purposeful action of the will. It means to say no. It is to confess and consciously turn away from that which is sinful and destructive and to move toward that which is good and godly. And as I mentioned, this is the, this is the put off or the lay aside portion of repentance. We are to lay aside that which is evil. That and that which is evil is here identified is as ungodliness. Now again, what what how would you define ungodliness? Right? Being ungodlike would be a simple way uh, to explain it. But when when we talk about ungodliness, what do we mean? Well, the adjective used here means to be without reverence to God. It not merely irreligious, but acting in contravention of God's demands. So it's somebody who's not just irreligious, that is, lacking religion, 
proper religion toward God, but acting in contravention uh, to God's demands. Uh, ungodliness is not so much the evil things you do. It certainly would be that. Those are the things you can see. But, uh, but ungodliness involves the evil thoughts and actions you have toward God. So ungodliness isn't primarily the things you do. Ungodliness is, is what you do in light, of, in light of who God is, how you think about God and how you live or don't live for him. Ungodliness is having disregard for God. Right? So understand that, that even those who um, you know, that deny God exists are ungodly simply because they disregard um, God. Right? God is our creator and maker. And creation, his creation is not allowed to disregard him. Right? That, that in and of itself is sin and worthy of condemnation. Right? So ungodliness is having disregard for God. And ungodliness is also defiance, when, when you're being defiant towards God. So it's both the person who just simply ignores God, and it's also, uh, ungodliness is also the attitude of revolt against God. And it's interesting that, that ungodliness is, um, appears, that characteristic appears so many times in Scripture and isn't condemned. For example, in, in Romans 1.18, we're told that ungodliness is the target of God's wrath. Ungodliness is the target of God's wrath. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Romans 4.5 tells us that God justifies the ungodly when they have faith in Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. So again, just, just think about the, the, how profound this passage is. When Romans 4.5, I'll just read it to you. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the one who is either defiant or uh, just ignoring him, disregarding him. Through faith, God takes someone who formerly was a disregarder, someone who was uh, disobedient to him, and and he justifies that person. Right? Romans 5, 6 tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. So that's, that's all of us, ultimately, before Christ. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So that the ungodliness that the wrath of God is, is aimed towards, God sent his Son into the world so that he would die for the ungodly, so that God could declare the ungodly, just and righteous. In First Timothy uh, chapter one verses nine to ten, the ungodly are are lumped in with a host of other sinful characteristics that are contrary to sound teaching. So, so notice that you couldn't you couldn't uh, be obedient uh, and and allow the word of God to to flow out of your life in through from sound teaching into into practical holiness if you're characterized by ungodliness. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary 
to sound teaching according to the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So obviously ungodliness is something that, that, that God's anger and wrath are poured out against. And, what he, and it's what he's promised to judge. And we see this in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we see that the ungodly are facing certain judgment and destruction. There we read, But by his word, that is God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, though God sent his son to die for the ungodly, Though the Lord justifies the ungodly by faith, therefore no longer making them ungodly, there are those who reject that. And those who reject the Lord's provision for ungodliness are going to face the wrath of God in judgment. And that's why he he pleads, the Lord pleads with people to hear his word, hear the gospel, repent and believe in Christ. Uh, Repent of your sins and believe in Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, now listen to Spurgeon again. Just explain what it means that God teaches us to deny ungodliness. So you understand God's wrath is poured out against ungodliness. So it's something that he detests. So if you've been made a child of God, ungodliness should not be found in you. However, he knows that we're not perfect. There, there, are, there are times when when we behave and we think towards God in an ungodly way. For example, uh, do you have days when you do something and you don't think of God at all? Do you, when you go mow the grass, are you mowing it in light of who God is? Are you doing it for his glory? Or are you just doing it mindlessly? So God, there, there are ways where, where if you think about the, the definition of what it means, what ungodliness means, it simply means living without regard of God. And, and that can be any portion of our lives, but that is not to be. And so Spurgeon says here that, and I'll just quote him, I'll get back to what I was mentioning, that, that uh, of Spurgeon's explanation that God teaches us to deny ungodliness. He says here, a great work of the Holy Spirit is to make a man godly, to make him think of God, to make him feel that this present life is not all, but that there is a judgment to come in which he must give an account before God. God cannot be forgotten with impunity. If we treat him as if he were nothing and leave him out of our calculations for life, we shall make a fatal mistake. There is a God, and as surely as you live, you are accountable to him. When the Spirit of God comes with the grace of the gospel, he removes our inveterate ungodliness and causes us to deny it with joyful earnestness. So the grace of God comes into our life and and teaches us to deny ungodliness, that is to put off ungodliness. The grace of God instructs us to deny any kind of self-styled independent life, which is either defiant of God or that disregards God. But, but that's not the only evil that the grace of God instructs us to deny. We are also called to deny worldly desires. The grace of God instructs us to deny worldly desires. Now again, what, we, we looked at what it means to deny. Remember, to, to put off in, in, in almost a, in, a, in a sense of hatred. What, what, um, what does it mean when, by the phrase, what does Paul mean by the phrase worldly desires? Well, the desires are your passions, your lust, your appetites. 
your, your cravings. And these can be good or these can be bad, depending on the context of how Scripture uses it. But since these are desires that are to be denied, they are definitely evil desires. When he said deny, deny worldly desires. Though the, wor- though the word world can simply refer to creation itself, that's not its meaning here. So it's not referring to anything um, like the, the, the cravings that you would have as, as an earthly person, for example, getting, getting hungry. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with being hungry and fulfilling that desire. Obviously, you could take that too far and fall into the sin of gluttony, but um, to understand that some, some desires are not sinful in and of themselves. So the, the, really the, the adverb worldly is used here in a sense to refer to uh, the system that is opposed to God. And, and it's used in this, in this way um, in 1 John. And we saw it when we went through 1 John together. 1 John 2.18, uh, sorry, 2.17 tells us to do not, love, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So in this sense, the world is that that system, that organized system that, is, uh, that opposes God and works against God. And so here, the worldly desires are those desires that are opposed to anything that God desires. They, they flow from, from the heart, and, and uh, God wants us to deny those sinful desires that wage war against our souls. John MacArthur notes that worldly desires refer to the sinful lust of your heart, whether or not you carry out those lusts. It's, 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 you can carry out those lusts, and that's certainly sin, but it's just as sinful to have those lusts in your heart. He says this, I quote, Worldly desires refer to sins that although we may not actually have committed, we nevertheless long to commit. These desires include all of the count, countless sinful lusts and cravings that characterize the natural man. They include youthful lust, fleshly lust, and all other foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he adds that when we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the worldly desires of the flesh. So again, this, this, uh, the, the, what we're looking at today with the grace of God instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires flows with Paul's teaching about walking with the Spirit and not walking according to the flesh, and that's in Galatians 5.16. Now Spurgeon highlights some of the practical implications of the grace of God teaching us to deny these things. He says, whenever the grace of God comes, wherever the grace of God comes effectually, it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler to diligence, and it sobers the wanton mind that cared only for the uh, frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. We have an abhorrence of those things in which we formerly placed our delight. We desire to be crucified to the world and the world to us. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the grace of God is instructing you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. These are the negative things that God detests. But we are also uh, to put on uh, positives. And there's, there's three of these. So we turn to the positive instructions of the grace of God. First, we see that the grace of God instructs us to live sensibly in this present age. Now, notice 
The word live goes with all three words where he says to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So live is the verb and the adverbs are sensibly, righteously, and godly. Right? Telling us how to live. Now, there's an emphasis here on the new life in Christ. He's, he doesn't just say be sensible. He could have said that in other places he does. But he, he throws in this word here to live. We are to live. The idea there is that our lives are characterized by the new life that we have in Christ. And they're to be characterized by the three, po- three positives that Paul lists here in Titus 2.12. Now, the idea of living, living for God, uh, of really living out our life in Christ, is similar to Paul's thoughts in Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself up for me. So it's the idea that the old life is gone. You were crucified and you've been resurrected a newness of life with Christ. And, and you are living out a new life. But it's not you. It's Christ in you. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ living in you. Uh, transforming you. For his glory and for your good. Now the first way in which we're told to live is sensibly. Now, if you're paying attention, you will recognize that word. It's been used multiple times in this context. We are called to live sensibly. That is, that, that is we, are to called, we are called to live with sober self-control. It's that uh, sensibly is that uh, soberness of mind that leads to self-control. And this is essentially the same word that appears multiple times in verses 1 to 10. It's a requirement of elders. It's a requirement of older men. Right? And Paul uh, lists how, how uh, God's people are to be sensible. And here he's calling all believers to live sensibly. And again, the adverb sensibly means to live with sober self-control. Sober self-control. God wants his people to be sensible and to live with self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And, and know this, he says this, just skip over the other two uh, words just for a minute. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, in this present age, in the present age. So God wants us to live sensibly in this present age, no matter how crazy it gets, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how sinful it gets, even in times of war, even in times where of chaos. God says that his spirit, his grace is teaching us to live sensibly in the midst of all that in this present age in other words you god's grace is so powerful he doesn't have to remove you to the garden of eden to help you live sensibly think about that so you don't have to go a lot of people like flee uh you know sinful situations they flee cultures you get the monks who who uh, are just like hermits and they they get away from everybody trying to get away from sin but but that's not the grace of God. The grace of God tells us that we can live sensibly in the midst of all that, right? That we can be uh, of the world, but not to be uh, really part of the world. We are, we are in the world, but not of the world is the proper uh, pronoun, uh, prepositions to use. We are in the world, but not of the world as, as believers. So God's grace instructs us to live sensibly in the present age. Now, the grace of God also instructs us to live righteously in this present age. Now, the word righteous, the adverb righteous, refers to living in an upright manner. 
It, refu- it refers to doing what is correct in the eyes of God. This is your, your interactions on a human level, right? How you, how you live out your life, how you interact, how you do business. Obviously, only God is purely and ultimately righteous. And yet he is teaching us as his people uh, his ways. And he is giving us his characteristics so that we become more conformed to the image of his righteousness. That we are being conformed from, from one glory to another, Scripture says. That's what the Lord wants for us, that we would have his righteousness. Not just in the sense of justification, but also in the sense of sanctification, that we'd be living out his righteousness. We're not there yet, and so we are in a process of growing. That's progressive sanctification. And so God is in the process of teaching us to live righteously. And the grace of God instructs us to live godly in this present age. This is kind of the opposite, the the positive opposite of ungodliness. God wants us to learn how to live in this present age, in this dark age, with, with ever a thought for him, doing everything that we do for him, for his glory, and, and that we would live our lives in light of him. Uh, as R.C. Sproul used to say, living, living life uh, quorum Deo, that is before the eyes of God, that everything we do, we realize that everything we do, um, even in the darkness, even when no one is looking, God sees, he, he knows it, and that should impact the our lives, and how we live. So to live godly means to live with full respect to and deference for God, doing everything for his glory. And, and notice that this ties in very well with the beginning of Titus. Look at Titus 1.1, where Paul says there that he's, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And again, you see the tie-in with how God's teaching us, he's instructing us, and that leads to godliness. Right? So the instruction, his word, isn't just to fill our head with information, but it is to be uh, applied. It, is, it has implications that flesh out in our everyday lives. Uh, and don't miss the vital connection between knowing God and living sensibly and righteously and godly. R. Kent Hughes explains uh, this well, I think, and he says this, if being a Christian only involved self-control over passions, upright behavior before others, and upright behavior before others, we might get the idea that Christian life, that the Christian life was only a matter of living according to certain rules or performing in an acceptable way. But by adding the word godly to the ways grace teaches us to live, the apostle reminds us that the Christian life is one of dependence on God. Godliness is not a consequence of, of human resolution or willpower. It is a relationship with God that results in a life in a life honoring to God, unquote. And it's interesting that Paul lists these three traits as kind of a, a triage of, of, of traits which form a summary of our, our whole lives. They, they speak to God's desire for holiness in, in all of our um in all dimensions of our lives. So living righteously refers to our um, relationship with others. Living sensibly refers to the relationship with ourselves, that is our internal passions. And living godly refers to our relationship with God. So sensibly to ourselves, righteously with, with others, and godly with how we live our lives before God. 
So living with such a comprehensive imprint of God upon your life makes you an example to other people around you to the, who see your life. And, and MacArthur notes this. He says all three of those changes, that is, that is sensibly, righteously, and godly, all three of those changes individually and collectively give distinct evidence in the present age of our spiritual rebirth. They are living, they are living and powerful testimony within the church and before the world of the saving and transforming power of Jesus Christ. So, so think about that. God's word tells us that it's his grace that's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, sanctification is, is something that's often confused. Notice here, and I won't elaborate, but I, but I want to I draw this together. It's, it's, sanctification is not a monergistic work, right? Justification is a monergistic work. What do I mean by monergistic work? That is, it's, it's one-sided. So justification, it's all God. He does all that work, right? So sanctification is what we call synergistic. It's synergistic. And here, this text is emphasizing that, that just this very thing. I'll show it to you. So it's the, the grace of God instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live um, sensibly, righteously, and godly. So it's the Word of God which instructs. It's the grace of God which instructs. So that's God's part. And then you notice the other part instructs us to do what? Sit back. Let go and let God see God zap us. If only it were like that. Right? We're grateful for those times when we grow in sanctification quickly. No, we are called to deny. God's word, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You've got to put that off. You've got to take that seriously. You can't play games. You play games with this, you waste your life. It doesn't jeopardize your salvation. You're still saved. But if you play games with this and don't put off the ungodliness and don't put off the worldly desires, you are squandering the instruction that God gives you. He's instructing you to put these things off. And he's instructing you to live in a certain way. That's also your effort, right? So if it were completely your effort, you would, you would fail. So would I. Right? If sanctification were up to us, it would be a hopeless cause. Right? But this is, this is a call. This is where Paul says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us. How is he working? He's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That requires intentionality. That requires sensibility, how you think about it, being self-controlled, making decisions. This world's full of choices, full of choices. And, and sometimes those choices are not, it's not a question of whether it's a morally good or not. It's just a question of time. Is that decision going to help you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires or what you're pursuing? Is that going to help you deny ungodliness and worldly desires? Is it going to help you to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age? This, this is you. You've got to take this um, in prayer and ask God to work in your life to help you do this. But it, but it does come down to you doing it. You alone is nothing. God is not going to do it for you. 
Right? There are plenty of Christians who just stagnate spiritually. Right? So-called churches of Madonna are full of them. Right? They don't apply the word of God to their lives. And they simply leave the grace of God as, as some fuzzy feeling. But the grace of God is not some fuzzy feeling. It does bring joy, brings gladness, because of the joy of salvation. But it also instructs us. It instructs us to to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live uh, sensibly and righteously and godly. That re- requires effort. That requires intentionality. That, that requires kind of focusing your life on, on those things that God is doing. And you know what? If God is working your life, you will succeed. You're going to have struggles, of course, because of sin and uh, because of your own weaknesses, but you will succeed. You know, a lot of people struggle uh, uh, trying to find God's will. But, but here in the, in the text, God's telling you what his will is. It's not so much about where you live or who you marry or what job you have. It's, it's your spiritual focus. What are you putting off? What are you denying? And then what are you living for? Right? The other things are really inconsequential compared to these things. And, and it's interesting that the verse that we kind of started the sermon with, 1 Corinthians 15.10, contains this, this synergistic idea. Listen to it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he's just saying, God did it. He gets the glory. His grace toward me did not prove vain. But he, he says this next. But I labored even more than all of them. And yet not I. Well, Paul, what is it? Who is it? Is it God? Is it you? He says, yes. Isn't that amazing? He knows that it's by the grace of God that he was what he was, that he was an apostle, that he was called to deliver the glorious gospel to the Gentiles, right? He who persecuted the church. But yet, understand that Paul's spiritual growth didn't happen just like like magic. He says what? I labored even more than all of them, that the grace of God would not be in vain, would not prove in vain in my life. Beloved, that's, that's God's will for you. That you would labor hard. You would press in, labor hard with spiritual sweat, spiritual exhaustion in denying worldly desires, desiring, uh, denying uh, ungodliness and living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age? Will you accept the call and cooperate with the grace of God in your life? If you're saved, I know the answer will be yes. The Lord will work in your life, bringing instruction where he needs to, discipline where he needs to, and encouragement where he needs to, wherever you're at in your your walk. But God wants to instruct you. He wants to change you and transform you to be like his son. What, what a glorious future we have. And that future is certain. It's a mission that you cannot fail at because it's not ultimately up to you. But you are commanded to move forward and to do it. And he will give you the grace to do it so that at the end you can say that, I am what I am by the grace of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for your grace Lord, in just abounding ways, some we've reflected on this morning and others 
Lord, just uh, uh, time would fail us to, to enumerate the ways in which your grace benefits us as believers. Lord, we are so, so thankful for your grace, which is abundantly poured upon us as your people. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be um, faithful students, faithful pupils, faithful disciples. That we would not be those disciples who, who let the instructions go in one ear and out the other. But we would be those who pay attention. Lord, who are intentional. Who are dependent upon you all the while pressing forward with all of our might in these areas to root out ungodliness and to press in and to be transformed unto godliness. Help us, Lord God, to live sensibly, to live self-controlled lives and help us to live righteously in our interactions with family members in the home and with our spouses and Lord at work and help us Above all, Lord, to live godly, to live every moment in light of, of your existence and your, you creating us. I just pray that you would change and transform us, Lord, as individually, but also as a church. Make us, Lord God, to be um, like Christ in his sensibility and in his righteousness and his godliness. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, that the world might behold Christ in us, and you would use us, Lord God, to just proclaim the gospel to those around us, and that, Lord, you would change us and transform us as trophies of your grace. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.